you know, for the next uh, 30 or so minutes to be effective, we're both going to need to trust each other. Men, women, kids, I'm going to need you to trust, I'm going to, I'm going to need to trust you that you're going to listen to what I'm sharing. And you're going to need to trust me that I'm going to say something worth listening to, something that's not going to put you to sleep. And that's part of my prayer that I prayed as I prepared for this. But I've been praying that God would reconcile relationships here today, that He would mend breaks in relationships, not just in marriages. But as we look into the Word of God, of what God designed us for in relationships, and see that the grace of God can come in and can work miracles, even right here today. I'm willing to trust you. Are you willing to trust me? Do you trust me? You know, as we begin, I want to ask each of you to, to think of two people this morning. One person is somebody that you have wronged, that you have done something to betray their trust. The second person is somebody who has wronged you. Somebody that's let you down, that has done something that has hurt you, that's unresolved. You got them in your head? Now just set them on a back burner and let them stew for a little bit, because we're going to come back to them, both of them. Both of these people are worthy of a fundamental level of honor and respect from you. Not because of what they or you did or didn't do. They're worthy of it because of the Imago Dei. I'm going to let you in on a little theological secret. Theologians, when they want something to sound very important, they just will translate English into Latin and say the same thing, but they'll just say it in a different language, so it sounds really important. Well, in the case of the Imago Dei, it is extremely important. It's the image of God in us. Genesis 1:27, the very beginning of the book, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human beings have incredible value because we have the image of God in us. To illustrate just how valuable we are as human beings, God, right after the flood, when he was talking to Noah and he instituted capital punishment, Genesis chapter 9, uh, verses 5 and 6, God speaking says, But for your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal I will require it, of man too I will require a reckoning for human life, of every man for that of his fellow man. Did you catch that? Did you get all that? It's, it's deep. But I think God, because he wanted to be clear to us, summarized it in the next verse when he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Where God says, if a murderer murders somebody, his life is forfeit. It shall be taken. But then he explains why, why such a harsh punishment. Why if somebody murders somebody? And he simply says, for God made man in his own image. To attack another human being, to murder them, is to attack the image of God in them. To, to make a statement and to, to fight against God himself. And so God says the highest punishment that humans can give to another, taking the life, is warranted at that point not because of anything other than the fact that God's image is in them. Now, John, why are you starting a message about reconciliation, talking about that? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that this morning. 
Because the reality is reconciliation is seldom easy. And our selfish human nature doesn't want to honor God by honoring His image in the person on the other side of this break-in relationship, especially if you've been hurt by somebody. Our human nature calls, cries out for vengeance, and we often will treat somebody different. But if you see this person as made in the image of God, then there are some things that are just off limits, some ways of treating them that we just we can't go there because to dishonor them is to dishonor the image of God in them. Respect and honor the image of God in them and in yourself. Speaking or acting dishonoringly towards the other person is just not acceptable for us as Christians. And so is allowing yourself to, to continue to be abused by somebody because you have the image of God in you. You are worthy of honor and respect. You know, human relationships after the fall, they're tough. Anybody agree with me on that? Anybody figured it out? But what was and is God's design for relationships? I'd submit to you this morning that we can know by looking at the highest earthly expression of God's design, marriage between a man and a woman. Back in Genesis as well, the second chapter, verse 23 and 24, we read that Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And listen to this. They will become one flesh. I suggest to you that the purpose of marriage is to become one flesh. To be fully intimate with another person. To know and be known by them. And to have no fear towards each other. To be so close to somebody that you can truly be who you are without fear. If she only knew this about me, would she stay? If, if he knew this, would he want to be with me? Is to know they know all about me and they choose to stay and that there's no fear. But I'd also suggest to you that because of that, God originally designed all relationships to be deeply intimate. God created us to deeply trust him and each other. That word trust we hear it used in so many different ways. What does it look like? You know, one little illustration of it. My son Nate's going to be 16 months tomorrow. About two weeks ago, I was getting ready for work, and he was playing around on the bed. As, uh, I was getting ready for work, and I was putting my boots on, or my shoes on, and he stood up at the edge of my bed, and I was about three feet from the edge of the bed. He stood up, got a big smile on his face, and he leaped towards me from the edge of the bed. I wasn't expecting that. What did I immediately do? I leaped to catch him, and I did. I was able to catch him, and he thought that was great. He giggled. <laughs> but that's an image of trust. He was so sure dad was gonna catch him that he didn't have to give dad any real warning about it. He just knew dad's gonna be there. Now, thankfully, at that point, I was. The reality is, I won't help be there. And sometimes I'm going to be the cause of a break in trust with him because I'm a human dad. But that's a good picture, as I see, of what trust looks like from a baby's perspective. 
Paul talked about trust. and gave us a good picture that I want to look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First two verses, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, This then is how we ought to regard, you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. In those verses, we can see that there's two parts to trust that I want to look at a little bit this morning to understand that whenever trust is going on within a relationship, these two parts are at play. And I like to think, and I illustrate oftentimes with couples, thinking of trust like this multi-stranded cable. Trust is what lets somebody in close enough to be in a relationship with you. So it starts with somebody giving a little bit of trust. Somebody has to start with that or there's no relationship. You can trust somebody enough to let them in close enough to say hi. Imagine if, guys, first time you met your wife, she was across the room. You looked over there, and you thought, wow, she's, a, she's incredible. Well, what if at that moment another guy walked up to her? You didn't hear what he said, but he just smiled and said something, and she just hauled off, and she just knocked him out. One punch and laid him flat out on the ground. Guys, would you think you'd say, Wow, I really want to get to know her. He just walked up and she just knocked him out with one punch. Or you go, whoa, relationship over. I'm not even going to go over there and talk to her. I can't trust enough to be physically safe there. And so relationship's over. Let's say she didn't. She didn't punch him. She talked to him and he left. And so you go over, you step up to her and you say, hi. And she just starts laughing in your face. She said, I don't know, people talk like that. She's ridiculing the way you talk. Would you go, wow, I really want to get to know her better? Probably not. You'd say, I can't even trust me talking to you and being betrayed. Relationship over. So you see, at each stage, the way relationships are supposed to work is you give a little bit of trust, and then you see how does that person handle it. Because that's the second part of trust, is trustworthiness. It's what Paul said here, it must prove faithful. You know, in the Old and New Testament, the concept of trust and faith are, are synonymous. The Old Testament uses the word trust and the image of trust a lot more common. The New Testament uses faith and faithfulness to talk about the same thing. So they're kind of interchangeable. And both of those words are directional words. The Bible doesn't talk about faith as just a substance by itself that's separate from anything else. There's a direction to it. Is faith in God. Do you put your faith in God? Do you put your faith in man? Do you put your faith in stuff? What we're talking about is trustworthiness is proving worthy of that faith that's been given to you. So understand, when somebody gives a little bit of trust and the other person handles it well, proves worthy of that trust, there's a strand of trust that's connecting the two. Because a lot of people view trust like a light switch, that it's either there or it's not. But that's not how the Bible talks about trust. Talking about faith. God doesn't require blind faith of us. I don't believe I see that anywhere in the Bible. Think about Peter walking on the water. He's out in the middle of, of the sea. Winds, waves, all that's going on. And Jesus says, Peter, come on out. Was that blind faith that Jesus was asking of Peter? I suggest to you this morning that it wasn't. Do you remember where Peter was the first time Jesus called to him? Peter was in his boat 
taking care of his nets. He'd been fishing, but he was out on the water. If Jesus had walked up to Peter the first time Peter had seen him and said, Peter, why don't you get out of the boat, walk on the water, and come to me on the shore? I believe that would have been blind faith. He didn't know anything about him. But by the time that Jesus said, Peter, get out of the boat and walk out to me, what had Jesus proven to him? He had proven that he can open the blind eyes, heal the deaf ears. He had proven that he could raise the dead. Now, Jesus had not asked him to walk on water. A fisherman who was well acquainted with water, he hadn't asked him to do that. But it was a little bit more trust than God had already established his trustworthiness. They said, Peter, get out of the boat. And Peter said, okay, I look at those winds and the waves, I get scared. I look at Jesus and I think about Lazarus and I think about the blind man and I think about the deaf ears and I think about all that he's proven faithfulness in and so I'm going to trust him a little bit more. When he got his eyes off of Jesus, what happened? He started sinking. But then what did he do? He called back to Jesus. And Jesus established his trustworthiness even higher. Now we know God is absolutely trustworthy because I don't believe another human being can trust a human being absolutely. Because it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when a human being is going to let you down. That's the sad condition that we're in. That's why we needed a Savior, because we're all inherently selfish. Now, we, Terry and I have not had a single selfishness class with little Nate. We haven't had to sit him down and say, this is the way you yank a toy from somebody else, and say, mine. But somehow, he's, he's learned things like that. Each of our kids, they learn things like that. And we've had a lot, of, a lot of talks, a lot of lessons that if you want to be in relationship with somebody, you can't take their toy and schwack them over the head. They won't want to be around you because selfishness comes natural for us. So when trust is broken, what do you do about it? Now think about it. If the relationship is not real important, you let it end. If you're at the mall and you're going to go park you're trusting the other people that are around you in cars that they're going to abide by the law, right? You're, you're hoping, you're saying, hey, if you're going to be within inches driving next to each other, you're trusting that they're going to obey the law. As well as courtesy. You expect a little courtesy from people when we're driving around the mall. But if that guy whips around you and pulls into the parking spot that you are about to go to, you've never seen him before, you don't know anything about him, do you walk over to his window and you lightly tap and say, sir, I feel that we've had a break in trust here. You know, I, I feel really upset and I'd like us to reconcile and make this better so that we can continue forward. Well, no. You may mumble on something under your breath, but you go find another parking spot because the relationships, it's not worth the work of reconciliation. But if there is a relationship that's worth it, then you repair it. But it has to be repaired. Because what I've discovered in, in, in my life and in my ministry is that broken trust doesn't repair itself. That it tends to get worse over time. We tend to get worse and worse. I've got this picture. Put up next slide, please. This is how I view reconciliation. My, my graphic design department did this. So, me. So it's a little rough, but I wanted to share something with you. If you see, 
I told you, we're designed for intimacy. We're designed to be known and be known by somebody. So God's best is that we are one. We're together on this line over here. But because we're humans, we're fallible. We have a sin nature. There's going to be a break in trust. And when that break happens, generally on one particular issue, there's an offender and there's the offended. Break in fellowship. We're no longer one on whatever that issue is. Now, I chose to use the word offender and offended. It's kind of clear as to who's at fault, if you will, between the two of those. But I chose those words because there's only one letter difference between the two of those. Just to remind us all that you might be the offended person today, but tomorrow you may be the offender. And so this process of reconciliation, we have to be good at both sides because one day you're going to be hurt and the next day you're going to be hurting somebody else. To understand there's that break and now we're going off in different directions. We're no longer together on that issue. Whatever it is that caused that break. But to come back together, because if the relationship is important to keep, then you have to come back together. And it's not going to come natural. We call that process reconciliation. That process of coming back together. God has a lot to say about that. And one of the great things and one of the things that excites me the most about helping couples through the process of reconciliation is that God has demonstrated how this is supposed to work by how he's treated us. When we were reconciled to God, he's given us all the tools that we need to be reconciled to human beings. I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is it's just an incredibly powerful passage talking about what God has done for us. That Paul, talking to the church at Corinth, writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And not only did he reconcile us, Paul says, he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. What is that ministry of reconciliation? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he had committed to us this message of reconciliation. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? Is not only have you received the reconciliation with God, the incredible gift of salvation, but that God gives you the ability to share that message with others as God wants to be reconciled with all people. And he says, we are therefore God's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. When you share your faith with your neighbor, it's as if God is speaking through you himself. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty awesome thing. That the God who created the whole universe, who could do it so much better without me, as much a limiting factor as I am in my human frailty, that God chooses to use me, to speak through me. Every time I step behind a pulpit, I'm reminded of that fact is God could declare his message so much better than I could. I pray God would speak to you in spite of me, but that God chooses to. If you're a Christian, God's given you this message of reconciliation, that God is speaking through you. We implore you on Christ's behalf, Paul says, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who, was, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think that passage in there is talking about what God has done for us. 
And if God has done that for us, he's given us the ability then to do that for others, to be reconciled. Because before we can reconcile with another human, we must reconcile with God. It's out of the well of reconciliation with God that we draw to fill the tank of reconciliation with other humans. I'm going to say that again because that's worth the price of admission this morning of getting in. If you really understand that, it's out of the well of reconciliation with God that we draw to fill the tank of reconciliation with other humans. Because we don't have the ability in ourselves to truly reconcile with another human being because we're all inherently selfish. So we have to draw that ability from somewhere. It's like a tank, a gas tank, can't fill itself. It has to be filled. And so our tank can be filled. We draw from that well that we've received from God. But many misunderstandings of reconciliation are out there. Many people don't understand what God intended for reconciliation. So I want to just look briefly at what reconciliation is not. Reconciliation is not pretending something didn't happen. I've, I've found a, probably the number one uh, conflict resolution strategy that many couples who come to see me have used is avoidance. It's just don't deal with it. As long as we don't look at it, we don't have to deal with it. But the problem is it's always still there. And when you turn finally to look at it, it's a whole lot bigger than it was. Biblical reconciliation is not pretending that something didn't happen. It's also not pretending that we're best buddies again. That to be reconciled doesn't mean we're all, everything's wonderful again. I submit to you this morning, my definition of reconciliation is the point of coming back close enough for trust to start to be rebuilt. Let's look again at that diagram. If you could put it back up, please. You're separated between each other. There's been a break and you're going your own direction. In order to come back together to God's best for you, there's a point. We call it reconciliation. The only way that that can happen is there's got to be repentance on the one who broke trust. And there's got to be forgiveness on the part of the one who had their trust broken. That those two come in together. Now, you have a, you have a choice. If you've wronged somebody, you've broken trust, you don't have to repent. You can go your own way. God's given us a free will. There'll be a time when all, everybody will be judged. But if you choose not to reconcile, you continue on in life, separated. Just like if you choose not to forgive, you continue on. But I want to submit to you that looking at, at reconciliation as the point which trust can start to be rebuilt means it will come back close enough to rebuild trust. Now, there's two parts to reconciliation, as I see and understand from Scripture. That first part is that repentance. I call it responsibility in action. It's an about face. That word that Paul uses often to talk about repentance in the New Testament, it was a Roman military term. We still have the same movement in the military today. If you've been in marching band, it's about face. If you have a column of troops that's, walk, that's marching in one direction, when an about face happens, at an instant, they're facing 180 degrees. But I also want you to think about that. How do you know that they did an about face? Because at the moment that it happened, they're in the same position. Their feet are in the same position. The only way to know did they truly do an about face is to watch, to allow time to happen, because then you'll see they're heading in the opposite direction. 
that helps us to see that part of repentance, that there's something that you can't see instantaneously, that it takes time. There's an internal part to repentance, because there's two parts to biblical repentance. The first starts within. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul writes, after he had written this letter to the church at Corinth, and they got really upset about it, they were hurt by it because there was a lot of sin going on, and Paul spoke very clearly to him, condemning the sin. And he writes, yet I, now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and you were not harmed in us by any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Part of the internal component of repentance is accepting that you caused the hurt and determining why you did it so that you can prevent it from happening again. Is understanding what, what happened with me. Why did I do that? You know, the devil made me do it. That's not a good answer because the devil can't make you do it. He can suggest, but you decide. We generally hurt one another for one of three main reasons. I want you to think about this. The ways we hurt each other. The first is by accident. Because somebody else's decisions can impact me and can push me towards hurting somebody else. If I'm walking along and getting ready to pass somebody, walking on the sidewalk, and a big gust of wind blows, blows me in and I step on their toe. It was my foot that caused the pain. I'm responsible for it. But it was accidental. There's, there's just no way that I could have known there was going to be a breeze come by. So that's an accidental hurt. Sometimes we hurt each other just accidentally because of this fallen world we live in and because other people's decisions impact us. Imagine that similar scenario to, to talk about the third type of hurt. You're walking down the sidewalk and somebody looks you straight in the eye and stomps on your toe. Does your toe hurt? Yes, it does. Does it feel different than when the wind caused it? Yeah, it does. Because it was intentional. That hurt was intentional. Somebody set out, they knew what they were doing, and they caused hurt. Now I'm going to move back to the second type of hurt. Again, you're walking down that same sidewalk. You're getting ready to pass. There's no wind blows. You're, you're not looking, the other person's not looking in the eye, but they've got their phone and their Facebooking. And they're, they're texting and they're going through and they're not paying attention and they step on the toe. Does your toe hurt? Yes. Was that accidental? I'd say no. Because it was preventable. You could have avoided stepping on the toe. That's the type of hurt I call careless hurt. It's when something could have been done to prevent it, but you were careless. I'd submit to you most of the hurt in marriage is careless hurt. We get so caught up in our own stuff of life, doing all the other things, that we don't do what we know we should to prevent a hurt from happening. And so we cause that hurt. When you're truly repentant for something, you need to examine your heart and ask for the Holy Spirit's illuminating light to say, why did I do that? If it was accidental, then is there something that I can do to prevent that in the future? If I know every time I pass by that area, the wind blows... Well, then put a little distance between me and the person so that if it blows, I don't actually step on that. For Christians, that third type of hurt, intentional hurt, is never acceptable. To intentionally try to hurt your spouse, your kids, somebody else, is not acceptable. Again, because they have the image of God in them. 
So we have this, this internal part of repentance that we're commanded to do, is to turn from what we did. But then there's an external expression for it, that second part. Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, called out, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There was an action as repent, but then be baptized. There was something that showed externally what had happened internally. John the Baptist called out to the Pharisees who came to see them in the wilderness, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What do I have here this morning? Anybody know what this is? It's an apple. Now, here's a tough one. What kind of a tree produces this? If I put this in an orange tree, does it make it an apple tree? No, I heard somebody over here say it. Good. It doesn't. Because just one fruit in the tree doesn't demonstrate what the tree actually is. Those external parts, the demonstration of repentance. John the Baptist said, demonstrate the fruits. If there's actually repentance that happened in the heart, then it will show on the outside and you'll be able to see that it's truly happened. Because thankfully, God's able to see our heart. At the moment of your repentance, God saw it, and he responded to it. But as human beings, we don't have the ability to see somebody's heart. We can only see the fruits of their heart. And so we're called to be fruit inspectors, to demonstrate that out of our heart, we've truly repented. There's a couple of things I want to share with you about how do you do that best, because expressing that is often hard for many people. The first is to start with a verbal apology. Start. Words are important. Action's more important. But a verbal apology starts and says, I'm anticipating to change and to demonstrate that I've changed. To include, secondly, is a confession and accepting a responsibility for specific things that you did that were hurtful. Just saying I'm sorry is not, not enough. What are you sorry for? I've had many people who've sat in my office and apologized to their spouse or saying, I'm sorry, when if they were completely honest, what they were really saying is, I'm sorry, I got caught. Next time, I'll do it a little bit more sly. Next time, I'll be more careful to not get caught, because they're not really sorry that they did the act. They just are sorry that they're now having to pay for it. And there's a big difference. I'm sorry that I actually did the act demonstrates repentance. I'm sorry I got caught does not. Third, to request forgiveness from the offended person. To demonstrate sorrow. Do you feel some of the pain that you caused this other person? If you've truly repented, you should. Because you feel, if you've ever had your toe stepped on, you should think about that pain when you cause that to somebody else. That's a way to demonstrate that sorrow that's on the inside of you. And then, to demonstrate humility. You don't, you don't deserve forgiveness. If you've hurt somebody, you deserve justice. To recognize if you're given forgiveness, it's a gift. As you respond in humility, saying, I don't deserve this. Have you ever repented truly for something? You've seriously expressed it, but it wasn't accepted by the other person? You didn't feel closer to him? then you've experienced the reality that reconciliation takes two people. And you can truly repent, but if there's not forgiveness, you're not reconciled. So I'll talk briefly about what forgiveness is. I would call it grace in action, because forgiveness is an act of grace. There's an internal part, 
The disciples came to Jesus one day and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And in response to that, Jesus taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in the middle of it, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 12, Jesus says, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And as soon as he says amen in that prayer, you know what the next two verses talk about? Forgiveness. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if that wasn't clear enough to you, he says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That internal part of saying, I free myself from the the need to collect that debt. Because there's a debt that's owed now. If you don't forgive, then you need to collect that debt. If, if I borrow 20 bucks from you and I give you 20 bucks back, did you forgive me for it? No, I just simply paid the debt. If I stole $20 from you and I gave you $20 back, are we even? Are we good? No, we're not. Because there's the break in trust that there is no amount of money that you could put to it. There's, there's no way to, to pay. Is, is $1,000 enough to equal a, a break in trust? Is 10000 When there's been an affair, is there any amount of money that could equal that? No, there isn't. Because there isn't a way to equal that. We do the part of saying, I will give my right to get even, and I'll transfer that to God. I'll let God collect on that debt. Because God's really good at collecting on debts. There'll be a time when every debt is going to be called. When every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. But let's let God handle that. Forgiveness says, I'm not going to play that. That I'm going to free myself up to move forward. Which is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not usually easy. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not denying You've been hurt. Forgiveness is also not natural. Because we're selfish, we want vengeance. And forgiveness does not require forgetting. You've heard that phrase, forgive and forget? That's not a biblical concept. God doesn't require that we forget in order to truly forgive. Because it takes no grace to forgive a person for something that you have no knowledge of. If you've forgotten about it, then the next time something comes up, there takes no grace because you have no knowledge of it. But it takes grace when you remember it happening, but you remember it turning the right to get even over to God, to choose to give forgiveness continually. And it's never deserved or earned because there's no way to do that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It's empowered by grace because you have been forgiven much you're able to forgive much by the power of God. What forgiveness is, is releasing resentment and receiving God's peace so that you can move forward. If you turn to that last slide, please. Remember, when you you forgive, you're now drawn into the middle of God's best, and you can move forward. So even if the other person doesn't repent, you're still in God's best because you've obeyed God, you've honored God. Now, if two people do that, they come together for reconciliation, then they're back to God's best, where God comes in and brings healing and wholeness to them. How do you build trust? One strand at a time. 
saying hi and not being ridiculed, talking a little bit about you and finding that they handle that well. How do you rebuild trust? One strand at a time. Reconciliation allows you to come back together. That God says, if you will just do your part, because God doesn't require you, and doesn't hold you accountable for the other person's part. He says, if you do your part, then I will give you that peace. You will be in God's best for you. But if two people do that, there's nothing else like it. One strand at a time, when the offender consistently does what the offender promised at reconciliation, those fruits of repentance. And when the forgiver, when the offended consistently does what they promise to do, to say that I promise not to bring this up again, that I have given it over to God. And if you do it again, it's a new offense, and we'll deal with it as a new offense. But to not bring up constantly things from the past. That will demonstrate the fruits of it. Now, what I'm talking about is not easy. I said it doesn't come natural. So I want to introduce to you my little friend here. This is Fido. I'm one of those weird guys that has a personal mascot. Fido is my personal mascot. He became so in, in my time as a devotion about 12 years ago. When I was praying and I was asking God to make me more like him, and saying, you know, I wanted to be the husband that Terry needed me to be that I should be. I wanted to be the father that my kids needed me to be. I wanted to be the pastor, the chaplain. I wanted to do all that. And God said, then be faithful. FIDO is an acronym for Faithful in Daily Operations. Me being a military guy, that made sense to me at the time. But I ask you, are you faithful in daily operations? If you wait until there's a huge break in trust to start practicing biblical reconciliation, then you won't do it well then. But if you'll start today in whatever size break there might be, and you'll start applying the principles of Scripture, and you'll say, God, will you make me faithful every day? Will I be faithful in my daily operations of life where when I hurt somebody, I will immediately express repentance? And I will demonstrate that to that person understands and gets, I've had a heart change. And if somebody wrongs me, I will give them the opportunity to repent I will forgive them, and I will work towards expressing that forgiveness many times in, in bigger breaks in trust. It's not wise to express that forgiveness until demonstration of repentance has happened. We'll talk more about that in another time. But that I will try to do what God wants me to do, to honor Him, faithful in daily operations. So as I bring this train into the station, I want to ask you to think about those two people that I asked you to put in your head a little earlier. One person that you wronged, the other person who was, who's wronged you. Do you want to be reconciled to them both? Are you willing to repent to that person that you've wronged? Are you willing to accept responsibility, whether it was accidental, careless, or intentional? You were the cause of that hurt, and do what it takes to express that. Are you willing to forgive that person that's wronged you? Not because they've done enough that you let them off the hook, but because you've experienced God's forgiveness and you want them to experience it as well. 
If you're a child of God, you have repented to God and you've received his forgiveness. Out of that reconciliation with him, you can draw the strength to reconcile with these others in your life. If you're not yet a child of God, you can be reconciled to him today to have that deep fellowship with him. We'll have church leaders that are on the side during communion that would love to talk with you about it. How you can be reconciled to God and then out of that well you can draw to be reconciled to each other. Will you pray with me? This will close. Heavenly Father, we come continuing into your throne room and express our need for you. Lord, you've extended to us an incredible gift of forgiveness that we have been reconciled to you and that you have given us this ministry of reconciliation, the ability for each of us to be reconciled with the other. I pray for healing now in the relationships that are here. If there be any breaks, whether it's in marriage, whether it's between parents and kids, whether it's between brothers and sisters, I pray that your grace would come in as repentance happens in the heart and is expressed, as forgiveness starts in the heart and is expressed, that reconciliation would happen in lives to your glory. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace that enables us to do this as we look to you as the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who has given us an incredible gift that we can give to each other. We thank you for that as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.